Isaiah chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 4. And I want to read uh, as we begin this morning. Um, Matthew chapter 4, beginning of verse 12, and that's written in the side margin of your uh, outline and study guide this morning, if you uh, want to look at that, if you don't have your Bible handy. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Why don't you pray with me as we begin this morning, will you please? Father, we come to you this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We realize that we're even able to do that because He has come and reconciled us to you, O God, where we have peace with you and we can approach your throne with boldness. We are so grateful for the cleansing and forgiveness that is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning that you would open your word to us and illumine us and explain to us the meaning of this passage of Scripture and plant within our hearts deeply the hope that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it for His glory. Amen. You know, if you were a Jew living in Palestine in the first century, there would be some things that characterized uh, your mindset. All of the Jews in those days were living in a state of anticipation. They were living that way because they weren't happy. Their lives were not at peace. They did not have freedom, even though they had their own temple and uh, they were able to go to synagogue and they were able to practice their faith in some respects. They were under tremendous oppression by Rome. Taxation was more than anything you and I have ever thought about. Uh, Their lives really were just difficult at best. They had tried unsuccessfully over a couple of hundred years to develop some kind of greater freedom and it had always eluded them and now Rome was kind of guiding everything that happened in their lives. They really, really wanted some kind of deliverance from that situation. Another thing that's interesting, and it may seem a little foreign to us in our day, but every Jewish family knew the promises of the Old Testament from the Law and the Prophets, that there would be a Messiah who would come and that He would bring deliverance to them. And 
every young Jewish woman in the time of the first century was longing and wondering, will I be that person? Am I going to be the one that gives birth to Messiah? Am I going to be the chosen one of God through whom our hope and our deliverer arrives? That was one of the reasons why Mary was so surprised when the angels appeared to her. Not simply because she wasn't married yet, but because it dawned on her that she was actually going to be the one through whom Messiah would come. And it just took her breath away. It was astounding that of all the young women throughout the land of Israel that were longing for the privilege, she had been chosen of God. What a fantastic experience was going to be hers. And she would actually be the mother of Messiah. It, it was more than she could bear almost in those early days as the reality began to dawn on her. And so the characteristic mood of the time when Jesus did appear was a, a mood of yearning and longing and waiting for the Christ to arrive. You know, though the world may not realize it as such, that is also what characterizes us today. Even though uh, we think we have it difficult in this nation, the truth is that so many other places in the world are in so much worse condition. And there is a longing around the world for war to end. There's a yearning for peace. There, there is a longing for someone to come and fix the mess that the whole world is in. The Bible says that not only does this mean that we are getting closer to the return of Jesus Christ, but it's also part of what is going to set the world up to accept initially the Antichrist. Because he is going to appear on the scene as one who can fix things. But ultimately, he will fail miserably in his opposition to God and all that is good. And ultimately, what the world is longing for, though it does not know it, is the return of Jesus Christ to kind of fix the mess. And so, when Matthew's gospel takes us beyond the initial uh, story of the birth of Christ and his uh, early period of fasting and, and seeking God in the wilderness and brings us to chapter 4. He tells us that there was a turning moment in history when John the Baptist was taken into custody and Jesus moved out of the area where he had been up into the northern regions of Galilee. And Matthew says this was in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah that the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were living in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. One of the things that we don't get from Matthew, but we get from reading all four of the Gospels together, is that... Jesus' public appearance had actually occurred about a year before when he had gone to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. 
and had been recognized by John as being the Messiah when he had performed the miracle of the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine, when he had gone to that first Passover. And John tells us he stood in the midst of the assembly and says, If any of you thirst, let him come to me. I am the one that has the living water. And yet, Jesus had not truly begun his official public preaching ministry. It was like a year of kind of collecting and a year of gathering together. And then he moved to the northern Galilean regions, settled in Capernaum, and began to preach from there and announce that the kingdom of God was at hand. That was the beginning of his truly public ministry. And it is linked with this prophecy of Isaiah that those who sat in darkness saw a light. In order to understand that, we have to go back in history. In fact, we have to go back 1,500 years before Christ to the time when Moses had led the Israelites out of the land of Egypt and they had wandered through the wilderness and now they were camped on the east side of Jordan. And Moses had passed off the scene and Joshua had come into leadership. And if you have a map in your Bible, or maybe there's one in the the Bible in the pew, I want to maybe suggest, if you have one, to look at a map that looks like this. You'll find the blue in the upper left corner. That's the Mediterranean and that sloping uh, shore of the Mediterranean. And the Jordan River in the middle with the uh, Dead Sea down here at the bottom and the Sea of Galilee at the top. It kind of helps to have that visual as I talk about what happened. Because the Israelites were camped east of Jordan, all the tribes. And Joshua was about to lead them into the land of Canaan, which had been promised to Abraham more than 400 years earlier that all of this land I will give you. But the reason the Scripture says there would be a time frame was because the Canaanites' iniquity was not complete. And the nation of Israel needed to grow from a band of nomads following Abram around to a mighty nation. And those two things took place. And so as Joshua was on the east side of Jordan, about to lead them in, God gave a command that many people today have a very difficult time understanding. He said, when you go into the land of the Canaanites, drive them out. Remove them entirely. Get them completely out of the land. Because the Canaanite culture and civilization had degenerated to a state of wickedness that can only be described as the utmost horror. They were evil in in all of their thoughts and imaginations. They were completely given over to sorcery and witchcraft and idolatry. They had a god called Molech, which was a a kind of a cast iron structure uh, in the form of an ugly, hideous uh, creature that they worshipped as god. And they would build a fire inside this iron structure until it literally glowed brightly with the heated metal. And they would put their children in the hands of this God and allow them to be burned to death as a way of devotion and sacrifice. 
they had sexual orgies and they had all kinds of um, uh, wickedness and behavior that, that filled their culture. And God said, if you don't get rid of them, they will destroy you. You've heard the, the saying that um, bad company corrupts good morals. You know, and the reality is, is that anytime you get a mixed group of people together, more often than not, the wicked ones tend to influence the more noble ones. So that the influence goes in the wrong direction. And that's nearly always true apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God had said to the Israelites, when you go into the land, drive the Canaanite out of the land. Get rid of them so that you will not be polluted by their ungodliness. Interestingly enough, they didn't follow that. And as they went across the Jordan and began to settle into the land, the interesting thing is that Zebulun and Naphtali, those two tribes, went north to the uttermost northern regions of the nation of Israel and settled there, which two things happened that were significant in the history to come. It put them in closest proximity to the pagan and ungodly nations around them. That was the first thing. And so they were kind of rubbing shoulders with unbelieving peoples all the time. But the other thing is, they did not heed the commandment of God to drive out the Canaanite. Zebulun and Naphtali tolerated the Canaanites in their midst. And as a consequence of that, as God predicted, the Canaanites began to influence them. There were intermarriages, there was conflict of values and philosophy, and eventually these two tribes experienced the corruption so that when the northern kingdom withdrew from the southern kingdom in the rebellion that followed the death of Solomon, the most ungodly of the crew was Zebulun and Naphtali. And as Isaiah prophesied in that declining period of the northern kingdom's history, he actually has some things to say about these two tribes that were the worst of them all. If you look in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11, For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power, and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying... And listen with one ear to the Scripture and the other ear to current events. It's a very interesting passage. To Isaiah, God says, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. Isn't it interesting that an appropriate fear and reverence for God brings a place of safety. That's what Isaiah is saying. 
If you fear the Lord and have dread of Him, He will be a sanctuary for you. He will be a safe place. We often don't link those two things together, but the worship of God and the reverence and respect of God is what brings a place of safety. Instead, verse 14, But to both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Now, Isaiah is writing these chapters. You have to recognize that the book of Isaiah is not necessarily in chronological order. And this is kind of like Isaiah's introduction to the book from the end. Oftentimes authors do that. They, they, they write their books and then they write the introduction. And Isaiah is kind of going back and he's writing to his disciples He's saying, this is the word of the Lord, and this is, this is what this means, and here's the word of the Lord. And he goes back and he says, bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. Pay attention to what I'm saying, he says, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. You see what he's saying? I'm anticipating his coming. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, the people, consult the mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? In other words, these people had gone so far astray, they were holding seances to get guidance. They were were meeting with spiritists and mediums to find direction. And Isaiah is kind of looking in, in amazement and saying, shouldn't you be asking God? What's wrong with you? To the law and the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn which is another way of saying they have no light. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they're hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God. Isaiah is saying they're going to live in the land seeking the spiritists and the mediums and continuing in their sin. And when they begin to reap the consequences, they're going to blame God for it. How... Doesn't that sound like today's newspapers? And curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. And then Isaiah explains this vision he has from God. He said, but it's not going to be like that forever. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he will make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
Now, let me just break into Isaiah for a moment and tell you what happened, because Naphtali and Zebulun had gone so far away from God that when judgment came in the form of the Assyrian Empire, in about the 730s or so, uh, Tiglath-Pileser, who was the king of the, the Assyrians, began to invade the, the northern kingdom, coming from the north into the land of Palestine. And, and eventually he overthrew Damascus, which was over by the Mediterranean Sea. And then the first two tribes that the Assyrians took into captivity in 722 B.C. were Naphtali and Zebulun. They came in and they took them captive, they plundered them, and then they planted other people groups in those locations. So the tribes that had never ousted the Canaanites were further polluted by transplants from all over the Assyrian Empire. And some of the Jews that were still living in Naphtali and Assyria were taken out of there. And the land continued to, to degrade. And in that process, Isaiah says, I saw a vision from the Lord and God showed me what was going to happen in these two tribes whom He had judged. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. In other words, there's going to be peace and there's going to be blessing and there's going to be bounty and the goodness of God is going to come. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now Isaiah saw that the land of Zebulun and Naphtali were going to experience the dawning of the light of God. But he didn't know when. And in fact, it was 700 years later when Jesus moved to that region and began to preach that Matthew says, this is Isaiah's prophecy fulfilled. The people who sat in darkness, the light has, has shone, and those who dwelt in the edge of the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. For Messiah has come from them. But what happened in that intervening 700 years? Well... Eventually, the Jews, the southern kingdom, went into captivity. Eventually, there was a return from Babylon. Jerusalem was rebuilt. The, the purists, what we would call the Orthodox Jews today, the purists were kind of in Jerusalem and Judah and that region down there. They were the ones that really followed all the rules and all the letter. But 
those people up by Naphtali and Zebulun up by Capernaum and, and Galilee and by the way of the sea, oh, they couldn't stand them. They couldn't stand those people. In fact, in that region, they were actually on a major trade route up there. They had all kinds of commerce going. They had all kinds of trading bands going back and forth. They were merchants. They, they, had, they were free thinkers. They were, if we were going to call it that today, they would be today's secular humanists. I mean, they, they were into all kinds of ideas and philosophies and their own thinking and their own ways. And, and the people in Judah down around Jerusalem just kind of looked at them and said, Ugh, we can't stand those people. They're, they're, they're half-breeds. They're polluted. They're, they're wicked. They're just an awful group of people. In fact, it was kind of so surprising when the word got out that Jesus was preaching in the regions of Galilee and some of the Jerusalem Jews said, Oh, good heavens, check it out. No prophets ever come out of Galilee. That's a terrible place. It's almost as bad as saying no one has ever come out of Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? The whole idea was that's never going to be where Messiah comes from. That's so wicked. That's so evil. They were broken people desperately needing hope and healing. You know, northern Galilee is both literally and figuratively a symbol of the darkness of all humanity. When I say literally, it in the day of Jesus, it was the worst place in all of Palestine that you could go. I mean, if you wanted Sin City, go to Galilee of the Gentiles, the northern regions. They even called it that. Galilee of the Gentiles sounds poetic to us, but what it really meant was the Jews among the pagans. Galilee of the pagans. That, that's the way they thought of it. They were a dark place, but they represent figuratively in the message of the gospel the darkness of the whole world. Because the world is in darkness. And they were most in, in need of redemption and light and hope. You know, it's an interesting thing about sin. The Bible says that there is pleasure in sin for a season. And that's true. If sin wasn't any fun, ever, people would never do it. I mean, be realistic. There is pleasure in sin for a season. The only problem is, is that sometimes, eventually, after a period of time, it kind of rears up and bites you. It, it has an ugly way of vengeance. And all of the free thinking and careless living and wanton pleasure that characterizes a sinful culture ultimately becomes a burden to that culture. And they're saddened by it. And they begin to long for deliverance. 
Think about our own nation. Think about, I mean, yes, we're in a period of economic downturn from our perspective. As I mentioned earlier, we still have it better than any other country on the planet, but we are in a period of recession, depression, or whatever. But largely we're there because our passion and appetite for material things has been driving us for so long that we, as a, as a nation, have lived way beyond our means. We have pursued the things we wanted with such abandon that, that we bought them on credit to the point that many people are in debt today beyond their capacity to pay. And the day that you go home with that new toy turns to a whole different story when the bill collectors won't let you sleep and won't let you rest and call you day and night. When you can't meet your payments and the economy's turned down and the jobs are lost and people find themselves in difficult situations and they lose hope, their lives get miserable because the borrower is the slave to the lender. And all of a sudden, that which looks so fantastic on the one hand has become so miserable on the other side of the, of the story. People that have given themselves to wanton and abandoned sexual pleasures. I mean, the whole revolution that happened in our country in the 60s, uh, that, that we ought to be able to do whatever we want and live however we want. We now live in a society where 50% of the children in this country are being brought up in one-parent households. Where kids across our nation are on drugs, not the ones they bought by on the streets, but the ones their doctors prescribe because their lives are so out of whack and, and their emotions are so in turmoil that they can't even follow a classroom situation. Homes are broken. Lives are broken. Disease is rampant. Sexually transmitted diseases are just everywhere. Marriages are falling apart right and left. That's not fun. It may look like fun in the beginning when you're doing as you please. But later on in the story, it's not fun. There is a longing for deliverance. There is a yearning for peace. People want out of the mess. The scripture says that they live in darkness. Darkness is the inability to see reality. It's being blind to the truth. And in that setting, it doesn't matter how free it may appear. It's really a place of bondage. One of the great themes of Scripture is the contrast between light and darkness. In fact, God is viewed as dwelling in unapproachable light. In fact, He is light. I mean, light is not God, but God is light. His nature is to dwell in holiness and to bring illumination and clarity. 
That's his character. You think about what light does. Light illuminates things. It makes them clear. When you go to bed at night and you turn out all the lights in the room, if you have a poor memory, you're hard-pressed to tell what color things are because you can't see them any longer. Try dressing in the dark sometime and then wait till the sun comes up and find out what you're wearing. You thought you knew, but the socks you thought were black are really brown and you're wearing them mismatched with, I better not go any further because it may apply to some of you this morning, but, um, you know, you dress in the dark, it's not a good thing. <laughs> you don't know what you've, what you've got on. When I was in the mountains last November, and, and this is frequently around here too, I, I like to watch the sun come up. I like to get up when it's dark and watch the day dawn. But in the mountains, it's particularly dramatic because when you're in the hollows between the peaks, it takes longer for morning to come. And uh, the place where I was staying last November I was uh, on the um, western slope, is that right, western slope of, of the hollow, and the sun would come up behind me, and so it would take, it had to get pretty high in the sky before it would shine down into the valley that I looked out across. And as the day would begin to become light, at first, there were just the dimmest outlines of trees and hills. And then eventually it would become gray. And it was all shades of gray. And then as the sun would come up over the hill behind me, the color would begin to come out. And you could see that the leaves that time of year were brown and the grass was green and the mountains had a bluish hue to them, and all of a sudden the color began to fill in the scene. And you could see the brook and, and appreciate what was going on. Before the sun came up, you really couldn't even judge depth very well. You need light to have contrast. Contrast is what enables us to see. If everything is the same shade, you can't distinguish anything. You need the light to have the contrast. You need the light to have the color. You need the light to have depth perception. It's light that illuminates and, and brings clarity to the scene. And the darkness is opposite of that. Friends, a person born blind, no matter how well they have been trained, cannot clearly articulate the appearance of a rose. They know how it feels. They know how it smells. They may be able to differentiate the petals because people who are born blind have a keener sense of touch. But it would be amazing to see what an artist would draw if a blind person were to try to describe a rose to them. They can never hope to do that because they can't see it. They could never describe a skyscraper with accuracy or the Yosemite with any kind of clarity. 
People who are in darkness cannot discern shape or color or depth or immensity. Those things are imperceptible. They can't really describe the stars at night or even the sun by day. They're in the darkness. The Bible says that when people dwell in darkness, they do not see clearly. They're blind to the true meaning of life. I can hardly read this passage from Matthew without becoming emotional. It has been on my mind for months now as I have contemplated the darkness of our world. Friends, people in this world dwell in darkness. They do not know the meaning of life. They cannot see clearly what it's all about. They do not know what their purpose is. They have their value system all upended. They cannot accurately describe to you what life is, is even for. They live in a realm where they grope around trying to find those things that bring them happiness. And the scripture says there is a way that seems right to a man and the end of it is death. It always leads to despair. I watched the other evening, most of it, I fell asleep in the middle of it, but I watched Ansel Adams' documentary And as many of you probably know, Ansel Adams is considered perhaps the greatest black and white photographer of our time. And uh, his images of Yosemite are just amazing of of the national parks in that region where he lived. And he was a part of the Sierra Club and gave his life to the preservation of that wild beauty. He just enjoyed it immensely. The documentary made clear that he was not at all a religious man, which is kind of strange because he had an interesting reverence for nature. But the thing that I found most sad about his life is as he moved toward the end, the commentators in the documentary, who were by no means Christian themselves, said that Ansel Adams feared death. He lived in fear of dying. It was the one thing that he dreaded most and wanted to keep as far away. Never wanted to talk about it. Never wanted to think about it. It was the worst specter of his life. Matthew says the people in Zebulun and Naphtali not only dwelt in darkness, they lived in the shadow of death. And the reality is, is that people without Jesus Christ are people without hope. Not only have they got life all wrong, but they have no real assurance beyond the grave. And for many, their best understanding is it all ends there. And they are no more. But the truth is, the scripture says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, a judgment. 
And those who sense there may be something after death as they approach the end begin to fear that time of judgment. To dwell in darkness is to be in a hopeless place. And of all the land of Israel, Naphtali and Zebulun in Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea was the darkest place in all of Israel. And it was there that Jesus went. And it was there that He began to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. It has come. And He began to proclaim the light and the glory of God. And Jesus Christ became to them a sense of hope as He healed their blind and and, and healed those that were diseased and cast out demons and delivered them from sin and from darkness and from their fears and began to give them hope and life and, and anticipation of a future and even to proclaim to them that to know Me is to have life eternal. Those that dwelled in darkness have seen a great light. And the ones that lived in the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. Friends, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He makes life clear. He brings perspective. He puts it into focus. The first news is bad news. God is holy and we are not. He is in light. We are in the dark. The bad news is we have sinned and offended a holy God and there is a judgment. But the good news is the hope in Christ is that in Him our sins can be forgiven. In Him we can find cleansing. In Him there is healing. In Him there is restoration and recovery. In Jesus Christ there is life eternal. It goes beyond the grave in the presence of God. There's hope. And the people that sat in darkness saw the light. They saw Christ. They were so excited to have Him in their midst. Maybe those highbrow Jews in Jerusalem couldn't believe that any prophet could come out of Galilee, but Jesus shone among them as the glory of God and gave them hope and a future. Friends, He is not only the hope of the nations and the coming King who will once again bring hope and restoration to this messed up planet, but He is your hope and mine. He is the one who has taken away the gloom and darkness and given us eyes to see and brought reality to us in clear focus. Who gives us the true meaning for life so that we can live for the right purpose. Not be distracted by the lies of the enemy. That our lives can be on track and bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ, knowing that to know Him is to have life eternal and live forever in His presence. In my Father's house, there's many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, Jesus said, but I am going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and take you unto myself, that where I am, you can be there as well. Friends, I want you to know this morning that we have a Savior who is the hope of the world and who is your hope. We have a Savior who brings light into your darkness. We have a Savior who will turn your life right side up 
We have a Savior who will heal your addictions and your troubles and your failings. We have a Savior who will forgive your past. We have hope in Jesus Christ. We have a Savior who will give you a future. God says to the Israelites, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans for a hope and plans for a future. And in Jesus Christ, there is healing and recovery and redemption and restoration and light. Isn't that glorious news? And isn't it wonderful that God did not launch the ministry of Jesus from the temple in Jerusalem? That citadel of Jewish holiness from their perspective. But he went to the outcast in the north country who were the most ungodly and irreverent. And in their midst, he announced the kingdom of God has come. And that's his message to us today. You know, he might seem less approachable if he had started out in Jerusalem, but he started out with the people who knew they had messed up. And he went to them. And he said, the kingdom of God has come to you and is available. Reach out by faith and receive it today. Thank you, Lord Jesus that you, the light of the world, have come into our darkness. You have brought color back, perspective, definition, clarity, purpose, meaning, truth. You have forgiven our sin. You have given us life eternal. You have made us right with the Father. And we have peace with God through you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us so much. In the name of the Lord Jesus, I pray.